Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Tuesday, the 9th of November. Tom Tilly with you. Today's deep dive briefing comes from a listener called Mel. Hello, Tom, Jan, Katrina and the whole briefing team. I really enjoyed your recent interview with the nun who was fighting for social justice. And by coincidence, I came across a podcast with an interview of a nun in Louisiana who has been campaigning against the death penalty for 30 years. I thought it might be your bag. Thank you, Mel. Thank you very much for that, Mel. It is our bag, actually. Um, The first nun that Mel mentioned there was Sister Bridger, an 86-year-old Australian nun who we interviewed earlier in the year. She helped a group of school kids fight a climate change court case. And then we've looked into the nun that Mel's talking about. Um, She's from Louisiana. Her name's Sister Helen Prajan. Now, she's 82, and she's been fighting against the death penalty since the early 80s. They even made a film about her in 1995 called Dead Man Walking. Time to go, Ponsolet. Can Sister Helen touch me? Yes, she may. Dead Man Walking! Yeah, so that's the film. It's an absolute cracker, and it's actually taken us a few months to track Sister Helen down. And finally, we have... I came out after that execution in the middle of the night, vomited, and it changed my whole life. It's like, the people are never going to see this. It's a secret thing. So our interview with the world-famous sister Helen, the nun from Dead Man Walking, in the second half of this episode. First, Katrina Blouse is here with the headlines. Hey everyone, so a big plan for electric vehicles. Today, the federal government will unveil plans to provide 50,000 electric vehicle charging stations and prepare the electric grid for an expected 1.7 million electric cars by 2030. Yeah, so this $250 million future fuel strategy um, will come after an announcement yesterday about a hydrogen hub in the New South Wales Hunter Coal region. Our plans to move to a lower emissions future very much have the hunter at the centre of our thinking. That's a cleaner energy uh, project for an area of Australia that has mostly been fuelled by the coal industry. Um, Really interesting, Katrina, that this electric vehicles announcement comes hot off the back of the Glasgow Climate Summit. And uh, it's interesting because Labor went really hard on electric vehicles at the last election. They went with Mm. a a 50% sales target by 2030 and the coalition slammed them at the time saying it was a war on the weekend. (laughs) Yes. Of course, though, we are still lagging behind the rest of the world when it comes to saying when we are going to stop the sale of of petrol and diesel vehicles here in Australia and encouraging consumers to move towards electric vehicles with, I don't know, things like concessions or helping us out with the purchase price. Boris Johnson has announced new petrol and diesel cars will be banned from 2030. The Californian government has said around 2035. Former US President Barack Obama has warned Pacific Island nations are the canary in the coal mine in the fight against climate change and need to be protected. There's an old Hawaiian proverb, pupukahi i holumua, that's roughly translated into unite to move forward. It's a reminder that if you want to paddle a canoe, you better all be rowing in the same direction. And that's the kind of spirit that we need to protect our island resources. So Obama was born and spent his early life in Hawaii. He was speaking at the COP26 climate conference in Glasgow, which is currently in its second week. Yeah, he also warned the world was nowhere near where it needs to be to combat global warming and said it was disappointing that Russia and China didn't come to the conference. 
A Western Australian nurse has been charged with fraud after she allegedly faked giving a COVID vaccine to a patient. This is a really weird one. So police allege the 51-year-old inserted a needle full of vaccine into a teenage boy's arm but didn't inject the dose and was caught out by a fellow doctor at the Perth clinic. Police prosecutors have told the court that a number of people had been coming to the clinic to specifically request that that nurse give them the vaccine. That started to raise a few eyebrows and uh, apparently she was uh, closing the door when she was administering the vaccine for privacy reasons. When one of the doctors insisted that they have eyes on during that process, uh, they allegedly saw the nurse uh, do the wrong thing and, and not inject the vaccine the whole way. So the theory is that people who wanted to get the vaccine certificate but didn't want the vaccine Mm. were coming to this nurse. Lockout restrictions in Darwin have been extended by another 24 hours over fears hundreds of people could have been exposed to COVID at a Melbourne Cup party. There may be new close contacts from this site as well and we are doing further contact tracing on this now. We'll be in a better position tomorrow to make a call on whether we can end the Darwin lockout. That's the Northern Territory Chief Minister, Michael Gunner, speaking yesterday. Uh, Those lockout restrictions were supposed to end last night, but then authorities revealed that a 21-year-old woman at the centre of this outbreak had been at a massive party at a Darwin pub on Cup Day. Yeah, so that Darwin lockout is now scheduled to lift at midnight tonight. And the legal fallout begins from the Travis Scott crowd crush that killed eight people. Travis Scott and Drake are being sued by a concert goer who is injured in the crush. 23-year-old Christian Paredes wants a million dollars US in damages. He says in the court documents that those performers incited a riot and also violence. So along with the eight deaths, hundreds were injured. So this is one lawsuit. There could be literally hundreds more. There was a crowd of 50,000 people who surged towards the stage when Scott was performing and he's got a big history of encouraging that kind of behaviour. And yesterday it came out in the New York Times that Houston's police chief, Troy Finner, had personally visited Mr Scott's trailer before the gig and warned him about the energy of the crowd. I think the most disturbing thing when you watch that footage back, Tom, is that you hear people pleading and begging to stop the performance and and people have died. They're telling paramedics that people have died and Travis Scott pauses and then just keeps on going with the show and I'm guessing that that's going to be looked at, you know, just how much he knew, just how much promoters knew about what was really going on in the crowd at the time. Yeah, especially given his history of being arrested in the past for Um, dangerous incitements from the stage and also that bizarre angle we brought you yesterday about um, security reporting people pricking other people with needles in the crowd. So just a weird, weird, tragic gig and there's going to be a lot more news coming out of this, I dare say. Katrina, we'll catch you tomorrow. Jan Fran's about to join us after this message as we speak to Sister Helen. Hey, Jan Fran, do you find that some of the best ideas we have on the briefing actually don't come from us? 
<laughs> I love it when you guys do the heavy lifting because every now and again, we do ask you to send in stories that you'd like us to cover on the briefing. And today's idea from Mel to interview Sister Helen Prajan is a cracker. So good one, Mel. And here's a little bit more of why Mel wanted us to speak to Sister Helen. So when I've heard other prominent Catholics present themselves in the media, they tend to use their airtime advocating for the church. I find it really refreshing that Sister Helen doesn't do this. She uses her time on the podium to speak passionately about this social injustice which she cares about so deeply. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And one of the main issues that Sister Helen talks about is the death penalty and why she wants it abolished. She joins us now. Sister Helen, thank you so much for joining us on The Briefing. You became a nun at the very tender age of 18. What made you want to do that at the time? You know what? Our nuns were faith-filled, fiery, playful, and taught us to love learning. And I wanted to be a teacher, and I wanted to be able to have a life where I could live deeply my spiritual life. And the Sisters of St. Joseph gave that to me, and I've been riding the waves ever since. And it sounds like there was a big turning point for you in 1982 where you met a prisoner on death row in Louisiana. Tell us about him and, and that moment. Yeah, I just have written about that in my book, River of Fire. It took me a while to awaken to the deepest dimension of the gospel of Jesus, which is to do justice, not just to be charitable to people around you, you know, and pray for all the poor people in the world. So I woke up to that and moved into an inner city, St. Thomas Housing Projects in New Orleans, and had African-American people as my teachers. I had grown up in the Jim Crow days in the South in Baton Rouge, where we had black people as our servants. Mm. Didn't even know their last names, had a servant's quarters, and we lived in the big white two-story house. So going to St. Thomas and being there among African-American people and seeing their suffering was a whole awakening for me. And then one day, I just coming out of the Adult Education Learning Center, I got an invitation, hey, Sister Helen, you want to write to somebody on death row here in Louisiana? And I said, yeah, sure, I could do that. I was an English major. I never dreamed he would be killed, he'd be executed. We hadn't had an execution in Louisiana in 20 years. And so I wrote the man, he wrote back, I visited him. And then in 1984, right after midnight in April, he was electrocuted to death. And I was there as his friend. And I'm telling him, look at my face when they do this. Mm. And I came out after that execution in the middle of the night, vomited, and it changed my whole life. It's like the people are never going to see this. It's a secret thing. And I've been a witness. I got to tell the story. And so here I am. So I'm looking at a graph of the number of executions in the US. It's from Pew Research. They're citing the Bureau of Justice stats. And it shows that from the 80s, it went from a very low number, almost zero. And it it actually went up during the 80s and 90s, peaked at almost 100 a year in 1999. And then it slowly come down. This source says 17 in 2020. How do you explain that journey that America's been on with the number of executions? Yeah, I mean, you know, the 80s was when our first was there with Pat Sonia, the first. You know, we had eight executions in eight and a half weeks in Louisiana because the death penalty had been put back in 76. And especially the ex-Confederate states are the ones that have done the most executions. And now you look at it and it's 
down to a very few pockets of prosecutors still seeking the death penalty. But for the most part, we're shutting down the death penalty in the United States. And that's simply because people are waking up. Conservatives are waking up to the fact that just fiscally, you spend millions and millions to kill one person. And with the appeals process, it takes 20 years. It's not worth it. The conservative whole project is to say we shouldn't have government intrusion in our lives. There is no greater government intrusion than to put government as the decider that we will decide some of our citizens can die and carry it out. So you have a number of people and more and more prosecutors' offices have what you call conviction integrity units, where they are very discerning instead of just going for somebody because they're easy to get without looking at the other possible suspects, which is following a pure political bent with just go for, look, here's an easy target. Let's go for him or her. The conviction integrity units are helping them to really hold off on that. So I noticed that even the federal government has still been executing people, a small number, but Clearly, it's not just some rogue southern states. So where where does the work need to be done to take this number down to all the way to zero? Well, let Biden as president. One of the things you recognize about the death penalty, it's totally up to prosecutors to go for death or not. At the state level, if a prosecutor at the trial level doesn't want to see death, nobody's going to die. And what happened under Trump in the last six months of his presidency Even though 17 years in the federal jurisdiction there had been no deaths, he decides he's going to kill 13 people before he leaves office, and he does. And so then Biden came, and Biden has campaigned against the death penalty, and he's not going to carry out federal execution. So one of the quirky things we're learning about when death happens and when it doesn't, it's often up to the decision of a prosecutor to go for death or not. So I do not believe that the Biden administration, they've already enacted a moratorium on executions. And I do believe that before Biden leaves office, that he's going to end federal executions in that jurisdiction. Then you got to work state by state. But then when you see, look at the first ex-Confederate state to end the death penalty, which was last year's Virginia. Virginia had the most slaves. Virginia executed more people than any other state. They had a district court that went along with what every prosecutor said. And they just repealed the death penalty. And you look at a convergence of forces going on in the United States. Black Lives Matter, killing of George Floyd, the tearing down of Confederacy heroes, supposed heroes, the ones who upheld slavery. So Virginia is in the midst of all of that. You have to have the right constellation. You have to have a governor willing to do it. And if the constellations came together for Virginia and they repealed the death penalty, it's a sign of things to come. And that's what we work for. We work with the citizens, wake them up. Then they wake up the leaders and the leaders begin to realize they don't get political currency for going for death. And finally, then the energy will drop off from it. Sister, when you look back at your decades of advocacy in this space, what has been the most challenging aspect of it and what has been the most rewarding for you? Well, definitely challenging is you get to know people as human beings. 
people who have, even those guilty, I've also been with three people now who are innocent, but even the guilty, that human beings are worth more than the worst thing they've ever done in their life. And then you are helpless. And there they're coming to get them. And here they're leading them to the death chamber. You're watching. And there's nothing you can do except to be there for them and tell them to look at your face that you will be the face of dignity and love for them. That's what's the most challenging. Rewarding is I have awakened to one of the deepest human rights issues of our day. And I'm alive with energy because I'm a witness and I know some stuff and I know I know how to talk to the American people. And it's through story as I've done in Dead Man Walking, as they did in the film of Dead Man Walking. Time to go, Ponsolette. You want to stay hell and touch me? Yes, she may. But it's getting to the people and bringing them there and they have good hearts. It's not like they really want to kill people. And you bring them close to them and they get it. So I know that's my work, and that's rewarding because I see people changing. I had an eighth-grade kid who's 13 years old who told me I read Dead Man Walking three times, which means I wrote a readable book, mm. an accessible book. And boy, as an author, that makes you feel so good. You know, it's really lovely hearing you say that you're so full of energy and, and you're driven by purpose. I went to a Catholic school. It was run by nuns and they were so active. They could terrify the pants off anyone. I think people have this idea sometimes that, you know, nuns are timid and shy and reserved and it's kind of the opposite in my experience. What do you think? Well, I mean, that used to be the way religious life was. You know, you were obedient, you were humble, you would never put yourself forward. But boy, when you're working for justice, you can't be that little obedient little person going, yes, governor, go ahead and kill him, governor. I mean, you can't do that. To me, this is really what Christianity is supposed to be about in all the deep spiritual traditions. Compassion, that recognition, this is my fellow human being, and I will not do to them what I would not want done to myself. So I will not render them defenseless and take them out and kill them. And it's in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Even if people don't have any kind of faith, and more and more people seems are leaving institutional religion, but the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, 1948, Article 3, inalienable right to life, which means governments can't decide to take life away from you if they've decided that you have not behaved as the government thought you should. They don't give those rights. They don't take those rights. It's inalienable simply because you're a human person. And that's what the world is following. And that's why most nations of the world don't have the death penalty. Australia doesn't have the death penalty. And most of Europe doesn't. The majority of the 194 nations in the United Nations don't have the death penalty. The inalienable right to life in Article 5, that people will not be subjected to cruel and degrading punishment and torture. And nothing is more degrading than to be considered such disposable human waste that we can take you out and kill you, and we will. That was Sister Helen, an incredible woman and an amazingly successful campaigner against the death penalty, which we heard is on the way down in America. Jen, mm. um, that seemed to inspire you taking you all the way back to your childhood. <laughs> 
you know, that's the thing. It's when you go to 12 years of Catholic school and your high school is run by nuns, you get a very clear picture that nuns don't take shit from anyone. <laughs> and this is just another example of that. Yep, a big shout-out to the nuns. Thank you, Jan. Tomorrow on The Briefing, the fallout from the Travis Scott crowd crush. Listener.